Welcome, everybody. Good morning. Every Sunday still feels like a reunion for us as we see new people back for the first time. And so, special welcome if that's you. We're glad you're here. If you're new to Cornerstone, my name is Brian Carlucci. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, I want to start today. We're going to talk about the subject of fear. But I want to start by telling you about one of the best movies me and my family saw in the last five years. And it comes from a book. And if, you know, my philosophy is if I can watch a movie instead of read the book, that's what I do. But all my boys read the book. And uh, the story is called Wonder. Anyone see the movie or read the book? Just absolutely amazing. I don't want to tell you a ton about the movie because I'd love for you to watch it or, or read the book. But I can tell you this. It's a story all about courage and brave faith. It's a story of a little boy named August, Augie Pullman, who was born with severe deformities to his face. And so even after a number of surgeries, anyone that would look at Augie could tell that something was not right with just his appearance and just the way that he came out of the womb. And um, the story is about the brave year that Augie decides to go to school for the first time. So before, when he would go out into public, he'd wear a spaceman's helmet. And when you're a little boy, it's kind of cute. Kids are walking around in costumes. But as time goes on, you know you can't operate that way. And so there's just one brave moment after another. When Augie decides to take off his helmet and let the world see him, that's a brave moment. Watching his mom and dad the day he goes to school is a powerful scene. Worried about what he's going to face, what's going to happen, knowing that they're not going to be there to take care of him. I mean, it just gets you choked up over and over again. He's got a sister that's going through a hard time in high school, and she has her own brave moments during the, the movie. And then his friends, these other elementary kids who are learning what it means to be a friend and what it means to love people and to not judge people, they have brave moments through the movie. It's amazing. Now, I tell you that story because I want us thinking about where courage and being brave comes from. Because what we're after today is how do we deal with the fear that grips our lives, okay? And often what we can do is we can say, hey, I'm facing fear. The, 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 the antidote to that is I should try to be brave and courageous. What I want to start off by saying today is if you try to be brave when you're afraid, it usually doesn't work out. Because courage and being brave comes from somewhere else. It always does. It comes from joy. Loving union with someone who is glad to be with you. Courage and brave faith is the result of what we call in the scriptures joy. And so today what I want to do in a series called The Upside Down Kingdom, where each week we are contrasting the systems of the world, the systems of the kingdoms of this world with, with the systems of God's kingdom. We're contrasting the currencies of the world with the currencies of God's heavenly kingdom. Today I want to contrast fear and joy. And they usually don't go together because if you think of courage and fear as the opposite or, or courage and being brave as the opposite of fear, you'd be right. Joy is not the opposite of fear, but it is an alternative motivation that we can choose when we're afraid, okay? So fear to joy. Joy is always an option when we're afraid, and as a result of joy, we get the courage that we need. Think for a moment of all the things right now that are motivating you. All those internal drivers, those narratives, those goals, those desires that are the, you know, it's the energy, the fuel behind your choices and your habits and your thoughts. There's many different things that can motivate people. 
Events can motivate people. We're coming off of a very tra- or, you know, traumatic and tragic event of COVID-19. That is still a motivation in some people's lives. Desire, vision, those can be motivators. I was reading last week, just the anniversary of the D-Day invasion and, and Memorial Day the week before, that on December 6, 1941, the day before Pearl Harbor, most Americans didn't want to go to war. But on December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor, most Americans wanted to go to war, and that day was the single largest day of volunteerism in the country to be a part of the military. An event can be motivating. So there's a number of things that can motivate us, but fear is a motivation, and so can joy. Joy can also be. Uh, Aristotle said something similar to this long ago back in antiquity. He said there's really just two motivations for the human experience. He said avoiding pain is one of them and pursuing pleasure. And that's really similar to this idea of fear and joy. We can be driven, motivated by either one of these things. Now, what I want to do today is I want to show you what Jesus did when he was afraid. And that might surprise you even to say that Jesus was afraid, but he was. We'll see that in a moment. Jesus was afraid, and what he chose to do is not just try to be brave and to suck it up, but he pursued joy, and in so finding, he got the brave faith that he was needing to have to finish his task, which thanks goodness he did because it's made all the difference in our life. And so I want you to see a few things. First of all, I want you to see that Jesus faced trembling fear. I want you to see how Jesus pursued joy when he was afraid. And lastly, I want you to see that joy comes from loving union, and then that leads to a whole bunch of wonderful things like courage. And so... Let's start in our passage today in the Gospels, Luke chapter 22, if you follow along, or you can read behind me. Here's Jesus' moment of trembling fear. So many of you that have been a Christian for a while, you're familiar with uh, the context of the the passage we're going to read here in a moment. We often read it around Easter Sunday or Passover or Good Friday. Jesus has just finished having dinner with his best friends, the Passover Seder. He's not yet been arrested The cross is coming the next day. Jesus knows these things are happening. And so he goes to a solitary place that was often his custom, and he begins to pray. And this is in the garden. And you know, if you've read this story before or heard a message on it, that Jesus, is it's just a a traumatic time. It's very, very difficult. But what we often fail to see is that this is his moment of of incredible fear. So let's read it. Verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And that cup was his suffering that was coming. Then he says this, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then verse 44, this is what I want you to see today. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, it's easy to think from first reading that this anguish is sadness. But if you get into the actual Greek word that's used here, it's the word agonia that, of course, translates to agony. But agonia in the Greek literally meant a moment of intense trembling, fear, or anxiety. If you look up at the definition of this word, it's, it, this is how it reads. An excitement or anxiety of fear before a battle or a fight. Or other definitions say the type of fear that trembles onto the end. So a trembling faith or a trembling fear just before something very, very difficult. So Jesus isn't just sad about the cross 
You could say he's terrified. He has trembling faith. How many of you remember the movie Saving Private Ryan? Also a great movie. There's several scenes in the movie where the main character, Tom Hanks' character, Captain, <clears throat> Captain Miller, uh, is shown to be um, increasing in this shaky hand that he has throughout the movie. And we're not told where it's coming from, but as the anxiety and the fear and the trauma of being at war increases, he begins to tremble often. And the soldiers under him notice that something's happening to him. Fear and anxiety can literally manifest in our bodies as trembling. I think that's a little bit of a picture of what Jesus was going through. Here's another picture. Many of you are parents. And as parents, you've had the experience of trying to get your kid to jump in a pool or to ride the bike without training wheels or to get pushed down the hill when they go sledding, but they're afraid. And they say, oh no, I'm not ready. I don't want to do it. Don't make me do it. And the whole time you're, you're in the pool or you're holding on to them while they're on the bike and you're saying you can do it, but they're trembling, they're afraid. That's the type of word that's used to describe what Jesus was going through. I've told this story before, but it's my favorite story about courage because I think it illustrates where courage comes from, at least the way the scriptures talk about them. Uh, my second son, Wyatt, was learning to ride his bike and we were at the Louisville uh, Park and his training wheels were off and I, I, he was riding and I was holding on to him. I said, Wyatt, it's time for dad to let go of you. And he said, no, you better not let go. I'm gonna crash. I'm afraid, don't let go of me. And so I kept trying to give him a pep talk and it didn't work. And, and so finally I said, hey, Wyatt, you, you know what you need right now when you're afraid? He said, no, dad, I don't know what I need. I said, you need some courage but you can't get courage yourself. But the good news is your dad has courage and I'm glad to share it with you. So I put my hand on his back and I said, Wyatt, can you feel that? The courage is passing from my heart through my arm into your back, into your, into your heart. And I waited there for a second with him, wondering if the trick was working. <laughs> Although I'm telling you guys, this is how God works. It's so true, all right, of our lives. But my hand's on his back and I'm waiting and he, he interrupts the silence. He says, hey, dad, can you feel that hot stuff? I said, that hot stuff? He goes, yeah, that hot stuff on my back. And I didn't say, well, Wyatt, it's 90 degrees. Everyone's hot right now. I just said, yeah, I feel the hot stuff, Wyatt. And he said, that's my courage. And he rode his bike. Trembling faith and joy comes from a connection with a person that then leads to courage. Here's a picture of what I think illustrates what Jesus was about to go through. Put that up there. You seen pictures like this before? A ship at sea about to enter the storm? Just put yourself in that little boat, which looks horrible. And you know that you're moving into that. That's what it was like in the garden for Jesus. And because of that, he trembled. He was afraid. He knew that all the powers, all the authorities... Physical authorities, spiritual authorities, all the oppressions, all the loneliness, all the violence was bearing down on him. That's the storm he was looking at. Don't take away Jesus' human, uh, don't, um, his humanness. Don't take it away. He was afraid of every whip. He was afraid of every moment of being betrayed by his friends. He was afraid of every second on the cross. He was afraid for his mother that he was leaving behind. 
He was afraid for his younger brothers and younger sisters. He was probably afraid for us. He was afraid. He had trembling fear. Now just stop for a moment and let that mean something to you. Because Jesus, the wisest man that ever lived, the kindest man, the bravest man, the most self-aware person that has ever lived, trembled in fear. Which means that he knows what it's like when as parents we're afraid for our kids. He knows what it's like to be physically afraid for your health, getting sick and dying. He knows what it's like to fear evil. He knows what it's like to fear an uncertain future. He knows what it's like. And that's important to know because at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you to bring your fear to him. And if you don't uh, have the belief in your heart and in your mind that he's gone through the same thing, you will believe that Jesus will greet your fear with something like this. What's wrong with you? Suck it up. I'll tell you what Jesus won't do. He won't give you some weird Bible platitude to make you feel bad about how you're feeling. He won't do that either. told in a passage we're going to read here in a moment in Hebrews that he sits on a throne of grace and he shares human suffering with us. He says, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be afraid. He knows what many in this room and those listening at home are going through. I mean, we're a culture gripped with fear. Chapman University every year does a study about the fears of Americans and the level of fear and you know, it's, you can read through the list. There's funny things that people are afraid of. It's fun to judge people's fears, you know. You do that privately. You don't use it in a sermon, but you, it's just fun, to, fun at, to laugh at some of those things. But what stands out is because they do the study year after year, you can see that the number of things that people carry as fear at a high level are increasing every year, and the level that they're afraid of those things is increasing every year. In other words, there's more fear year after year. And the last study that they published was in 2019. So they didn't get to tell us about last year yet. Fear is an emotion. And like all emotions, my counselor tells me, emotions are stored in your body as energy. You have to carry them, which means there's a cost to them. There are a lot of people that carry a lot of fear, just like a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, a lot of joy, it's all energy. But those negative emotions that need to be processed with God brought to him, they take a toll on us. And that is why, look at just the, the sickness that is the result of chronic fear in, this, in our country. Fear to our body shows up as anxiety. In our minds, it's worry. In our hearts, and our spiritual lives, it can become despair. Fear makes people very, very sick. Scriptures tell us that there's two types of fear. One is good. The good type of fear is circumstantial fear. It keeps us alive. It protects us. It's discerning. It's empowering. But it's meant for a moment. God even designed the body and the mind to, to uh, give us a warning system so that we know, how to, to, we know when to be afraid. And so let's say something is a threat to you. There's a certain part of your brain that gets activated. Your nervous system begins to be activated. And your fear responses all begin to kick in. And hormones like adrenaline and cortisol are released in your body for a moment. Your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes up, your, your muscles tighten, and you're ready, you know, we know the phrase, to fight or flight, right? This is healthy, but it's meant for a moment. 
Here's what's not healthy and the unhealthy part of fear. That's a type of fear that's persistent. It's controlling. People often use uh, the word in bondage or slavery to fear to describe this type of fear. It's confusing. This is the type of fear that over time breaks the body down because the body and the mind are not meant to process fear continually. This type of fear, the Bible describes it as something that can take on its own spirit. Okay, so the Bible talks about being afraid in an appropriate way. It also talks about a spirit of fear that's unhealthy. So one of the places that it's just kind of mentioned in, as a side note is in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Many people love this passage. You can see it behind me. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of your hands. For the spirit of God, the spirit that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Older translations say he did not give us a spirit of fear. A spirit of fear, that chronic fear that people carry, it will make you selfish and weak and confused and make life feel like it's out of control all the time. It is our enemy. And our true enemy, Satan, a personality behind this whole thing, he uses chronic fear to get to us. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says. If you go all the way to verse 15, it says, The devil, or let's read 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. So Jesus is breaking the power of Satan. Look what it says. That is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Satan uses all types of chronic fear. And Jesus is saying here, he came to break some of that for us. Not every fear that we have, but that type of chronic fear that confuses us, makes us unloving, makes us selfish. You know what what I noticed happened in the last year? You know, there's appropriate levels of fear that was in the world, our country, our church. But there's really inappropriate levels of fear. And one of the tells that someone was being filled with a spirit of fear is if they began to shame other people around them for not being afraid like they were afraid. So that's one of the things that happens when you have a spirit of fear. You want everyone else to be afraid of the same thing, and you want everyone else to feel it just like you feel it. It's really similar to what we do with anger. We want everyone to be angry at what we're angry at and be angry at the level that we're angry at. This happens with fear. Now, let's contrast that before we look at Jesus' actions with joy. Joy is just not smiling and circumstantial happiness. Joy, listen to this, comes from relationships. Some of you are in the prayer class on Saturday mornings, and you're getting to hear from Michael Hendricks, and he's an associate with a man named Jim Wilder. These are two teachers that we've been learning from here at Cornerstone for a number of years now. And what's so neat is uh, Jim Wilder studies the brain. And in the last 20 years, we've learned more about how the brain works than we've learned in all of history before that moment. Because of certain types of imaging, we're able to see different and identify certain parts of the brain that control certain behaviors and emotions. We're able to see that certain parts of the brain develop at different, different rates and at different times. But they've been able to identify the part of the brain that controls joy, which means that they can measure the types of things that activate joy in a person's brain. Science can now tell us these are the things that lead to joy. Guess what they're not telling us leads to joy? Money. 
freedom. The things they are telling us that lead to joy is the smile of a parent towards their kid. You can see a baby's joy reactions begin to fire in their brain as the mother holds the baby and looks in the baby's eyes. A handshake leads to joy. A long dinner with friends, holding your spouse's hand, taking a long walk, accomplishing something together with someone else. Joy is always the result of relational harmony. It always is. It's a result of loving union. That's where joy comes from. So when you forgive someone, it can activate joy in your mind. Joy is relational. Look what John says in 1 John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. He's kind of saying this. Just using different words. When you are connected to love, it is the counter to fear. Joy is the result of love. Love is not the end game. Did you know that? Joy is. Love produces joy. Someday, when we're in the kingdom of God in heaven, the way that we will describe that moment will be continual, uh, exceptional joy. That's what heaven will be like. And it will be a result of loving union with God and with other people. That's what relationships are meant to create. It's meant to create joy for us. So Jesus pursues joy in the midst of fear. Let me show you. Hebrews chapter 12. It's amazing insight into that day that Jesus was going through. The day where he trembled with fear. Okay, Verse 1. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The author's trying to encourage us to keep going when we're afraid. Look what he says. Here's the example. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. While Jesus was afraid, joy was on his mind. But not just the way we would describe joy, the type of joy that we see described in the scriptures, the joy that's the result of loving union. So with his father was on his mind. In his presence was on his mind. You were on his mind when he was afraid. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So we often don't ask this question when we're thinking about processing fear. But think of it this way. When you're afraid, what would it look like to pursue joy? What would it look like to move towards God and other people in loving union? See, I don't think Jesus was trying hard to be brave. In fact, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that he was trying really hard to be brave and courageous. We're told that he focused on joy. He focused on moments in God's presence. He focused on drawing from God who was with him. And as a result, he had a brave faith. He pursued God's presence. Here's another passage that gives us insight into what Jesus was going through. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has died and rose again. The Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples, and they're beginning to share the good news, empowered. Remember, we're told they're afraid until God's presence is with them. And in a moment, they're no longer afraid. His presence made them brave. But there's a gathering that's taking place in Jerusalem and people are experiencing 
their friends around them in a really weird way. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Things are happening. They're like, what the heck's going on? And Peter gets up and he gives one of the very first sermons after the resurrection of Jesus. And he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then he quotes David, King David, from long ago in Psalm chapter 16. So look at the passage he includes in here when he's talking about Jesus dying. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart will be glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Now, Jesus, of course, would have known this passage. I think Peter is telling us that this is the kind of thing that was on Jesus' mind when he was going to the cross. The fullness of joy in his presence. He wasn't focused on being afraid. He wasn't focused on being brave. He's focusing on joy that comes through loving union. I heard a pastor a while back say this. He said, do you think it's possible that Jesus had Psalm 16 in his heart, in his mind, and on his lips while he carried that cross? I will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. You'll not let your Holy One seat decay. You will fill me with joy in your presence. I think it's very possible. Now, if you go back to Psalm 16 you see that there's a little bit more than what Peter quotes in Acts chapter two. He says this, you make known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. And then the end of the verse says this, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Okay, so that's how that Psalm ends. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is where it matters for us, okay, to get practical. How do we process fear? You need to know where you stand and you need to draw from the one that is next to you. Okay, so this phrase, at your right hand, is an important phrase in the Bible. It shows up in a number of places. So for example, right now, we're told that Jesus is in his body. He's not a spirit floating around. He's in a body with hair, and he wears clothes. I told a couple getting married a couple weeks ago that Jesus loves weddings. I think he gets dressed up in heaven when people get, get married. I do. He's so human. Right now, he's in heaven at the right side of his heavenly father. They are side by side. They are face to face. They're sharing moments together. He is at the right hand of the father sitting on a throne. The area reserved to the right of Jesus, to the right hand of Jesus, is a place that we're told in Ephesians that's reserved for people who have joined their lives to him. So if you've said yes to Jesus, even though you're sitting in this room right now, your heavenly status is that you sit to the right of Jesus, to the right hand. So Jesus is to the right hand of the Father. We are to the right hand of him. Ephesians says we have been saved and seated in heavenly realms. It's describing a future experience but a present reality. 
In other words, you get to sit in the throne room. You know, right now there are millions of churches around the world gathering together. People are giving thanks and praise to God. But right now there is a scene in heaven where everyone around him is giving thanks and praise. And you are seated there in that moment. We are meant to bring our anger, our sadness, our fear to him. Not only because he knows what it's like, but that is where fear is replaced with joy and we find brave faith. That is where we find courage. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 describes this moment. Mentioned it earlier. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness or insert fear there. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Or say, in our time of fear. The world system is to stew in your fear, to want everyone else to feel it the way you do. Or if you get tired of it, to say, all right, I'm going to suck it up and I'm going to be brave for a moment. Neither works. God offers an alternative, that is to pursue joy, pursue loving union with him in the midst of despair and fear, and then God turns that into brave faith. I'm going to tell you one last story, and then uh, we're going to take communion together. So, um, I don't journal, but I have this giant mess of notes in my phone, like 160 different notes in my phone, and I don't know where anything is. And this week, I was just combing through my notes because I was deleting certain ones. And I got to uh, a note that was written in early June of last year. So uh, kind of in the beginning of the pandemic, as a, as a church and as a pastor, we'd been through three very challenging months. And I started reading the stuff that I had written in my phone. I thought, oh, what a surprise. Brian actually shared his feelings. That doesn't happen very often. So it did get my attention. So I was having a pity party that day, and I said, I just got off the phone, or got, got out of six hours of Zoom calls. We spent time talking about the dark underbelly of the lockdowns. We shared some stats about mental health. Suicide for young people was becoming a great concern for us here in our church. Substance abuse was on the rise. Deaths of despair were beginning to increase. Divorces were going up. I had a friend here in the church that had to uh, lay off nearly 100 people today. I wrote, how do I help these people? Not happy to re reinvent our church all over again like we did four months ago. Everything seems fragile. Our staff seems fragile. My family seems fragile. I'm having a hard time knowing what to do. And then talking about the uncertainty of moving into the summer, I said, I want to make good decisions, but I don't even know what to do. I'm tired. I'm worried about my son. Cole had an injury that he was going through. I was worried about my first grader, Jude, who's learning to read, but he's at home. I was worried about my wife now becoming a teacher in our home. We were both worried about that. I spent time talking with Brian and Katie Thomas about our friends in Uganda who were literally beginning to starve to death because of shutdowns. And then I wrote this. I feel inadequate to deal with all of this. 
I can't take care of everyone. It feels overwhelming, a horrible, a horrible burden. And then I wrote this because I realized in the moment, I was not just upset. One of my greatest fears is not knowing what to do. That's one of my fears, not knowing what to do. If I know what to do, if there's a plan, I, can, I feel like I can handle a bunch of stuff. But I wrote down, I don't know what to do. I am afraid. I even wrote, I don't want to do this anymore. So I don't know how long that lasted. I was out on the trail behind my house, which is kind of like my prayer room. And I'm going through all of this stuff and writing it down and hashing it out with God. And I will tell you, he did not give me a single answer of what to do. Nothing in the moment. He didn't fix any of the problems taking place in our family, our church. Remember in the moment, I was so sad for Gabe Kinsley, one of my best friends, our youth pastor, whose sabbatical was taking away from him last summer. Just like one thing after another. I didn't know how to fix any of it. God didn't give me any answers. But what he did is he often gives me this image. I get two images of God. Sometimes I get an image of God with him walking beside me because we're friends. But sometimes he gives me an image of him standing behind me with his hand on my back. You know when I get that image? When I'm afraid. In your presence is fullness of joy. My pity party changed to a great big smile. My fear, which was still there, was transformed into something different, into joy. And I'm so grateful to say God gave me the brave faith I needed to continue on. He does this all the time for all of us, or he can. So worship team, you guys can come out. John, you can put this next slide up. I want to give you four practical steps really quick. These are things that you can do to deal with your, your feel, fear that come right out of the example of Jesus. So first of all, remind yourself that although fear feels lonely, you are not alone. Fear, sadness can feel lonely. Remind yourself that you are not alone. Remember what David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil for you are with me. That's how it starts, a reminder that God is with us. Number two, connect to God's presence. So wherever that place is, however it is that you best connect with God, that is not a waste of time. That's absolutely essential. If you need to get up early in the morning, because that's when you hear from him. That's when you notice his presence, get up. If you need to be in church, because I notice his presence when we worship together, be here every week if you need to. Walk on the trail behind your house, whatever it is, but connect to God's presence. And then in that connection, let God exchange your fear for joy. Stay focused on him. Don't worry about being brave. Because brave faith comes from that, that joy that comes from loving union. So exchange your fear for joy as you're in his presence. And then lastly, walk with that brave faith. Because courage is the result. Brave faith is the result. And it always acts. It always does. It always changes things. It gets us unstuck. So remind yourself that you're not alone. Connect to God's presence. Exchange your fear, exchange your fear for joy. And then walk with brave faith. Everything we need is available to us at every moment. 
So if you are dealing with fear, if you're gripped with fear, if fear is a struggle that you have, everything you need to not be stopped by your fear, controlled by your fear, to let a spirit of fear set in, everything is available to you because you sit at his right hand. And his presence is fullness of joy, and joy leads to brave faith. All right, let's stand together and take the elements. And I want to connect this practice that we do here at Cornerstone once a month, and it's been done for 2,000 years. To the courage of Jesus. So the bread, if you don't know, represents his body broken for you. Represents a sacrifice. Represents that someone died so that you can live. Jesus died so that you can live. This is what the bread represents. And then the cup represents his blood poured out for us. In the Bible, there's things called covenants. And covenants are always cut with blood. There's always bloodshed. And so he said, this represents the new covenant. But today... You just to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to imagine Jesus trembling in the garden. It actually can be overwhelming to imagine your hero trembling. But make him human for a moment. He was a man that trembled. But Jesus was also a man that had been given the insights from heaven, who was also God. And what he did is he pursued joy in the midst of fear. And he went to the cross and he broke his body for us and he poured out his blood for us. Because the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so today as we take the bread and we take the cup, Enjoy the courage of Jesus. So let's eat the bread together. Then drink the cup. Father, we today just kind of stand in awe of your brave faith, of your courage. Thank you, Lord, how you use the scriptures to show us the path to that brave faith, that it actually comes through joy. It comes through relationships. So I bless my friends here today who are struggling with fear or who will in the future. I pray that you would give them the reminder that brave faith is found on the other side of loving union with you. So that may they be reminded that they are not alone. May they pursue your presence and may they find joy at your right hand. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.